0: Thank you, God, for joy. Uh, Today, I want to speak from 1 Peter 4. And the title today for my message is Pray and Love Deeply. But there's a potential subtitle. It's um, How to Be a Witness When the End is Near. (laughs) That's a little more scary and exciting, right? How to be a witness when the end is near. (laughs) And I'm not going to get into the details about the end, because we all have different ideas of what that can mean. And I'd love to talk with you about that, but I want to speak more about what it means to be a witness when the end is near. I've been meditating on 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11 this month, and it begins with this statement. It says, the end of all things is near, therefore be alert and sober-minded so that you may pray. Be alert and sober-minded so that you can pray. Those are intense words. And I've mentioned a lot this, this last year, year and a half, about this idea of the end times. And people have brought it up several times. And I'm sure we all have different pictures of what that could look like. For some of us, it might be like the Avengers End Game, <laughs> which... That would bring us all to tears. <laughs> or maybe it's the Left Behind series or whatever narrative it is about what you grew up with. What does it mean, the end of times? I'm reminded of the story about a priest and a pastor. And they were from the, they were well-known in their small lake town. And um, they were standing by the side of the road and they were pounding in a sign into the ground that said, The end is near. Turn yourself around now before it's too late. All of a sudden, this car sped past them, and the driver yelled out the window, leave us alone, you religious freaks. But all of a sudden, as they watched the car drive past and go around the curve, they heard the rubber screeching and a loud splash. And the priest looked at the pastor and he said, do you think the sign should have said, the bridge is down? <laughs> what does it mean that the end of all things is near? Does it mean the bridge is down or does it mean something else? If we look at the Bible, we can look at of it as a sort of collection of beginning of the end stories. Think about the story of Exodus. It was the beginning of the end for life in Egypt. They were going to leave Egypt and go on. And they end up at the Red Sea at one point with the Egyptians crashing in on them and the Red Sea in front of them. And what do the people do? They panic and they get really mad at Moses and God. What have you done? Why have you brought us out here to die in the wilderness? Why have you done this to us? The end is near. Later on, hundreds of years later, the Israelites find themselves again in a difficult situation. They're on their way in exile to Babylon. And they find themselves sitting by a river, weeping. It says in Psalm 137, we sat down and wept when we remembered Jerusalem. It was the end of Solomon's temple as they knew it. It was the end of that time of prosperity and worship as they knew it. It was the end of things. Later on, there's a famine and there's a drought and there's a prophet named Joel who stands up and he says, sound the trumpet in Jerusalem, raise the alarm on my holy hill. The day of the Lord is here. It's a day of darkness and gloom, thick clouds and deep blackness. Maybe some of us are hearing R.E.M. (laughs) singing, it's the end of the world as we know it. (laughs) Lots of ends. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, this was an exciting day. This was a good day. He stands up and repeats the words of the prophet Joel. He says, in the last days, God said, he would pour out his spirit on all people. This is it. This is the last days. That was an exciting day. I was born in the 70s, and my parents were super young. My mom was only 20, and I remember asking my mom, why did you have us when we were so young? And her response was, I had to have babies before Jesus came back. (laughs) That's what she said. She had to have babies before Jesus came back. There's a sense of urgency and a sense that things are changing. Beginnings and endings are a natural part of life, but they always feel so intense, don't they? They're so difficult. And each generation is just like, Jesus, come. Let us see your arrival in this place and time. And it, can, it feels that way right now, doesn't it? The world is in upheaval and frustration And each one of us, not only collectively, but as individuals, we each have sorts of stories of endings and beginnings. And they're stressful. And sometimes we can say, I can't take it anymore. It's the end of the world. (laughs) Perhaps you feel like this. Perhaps you feel like you live in a dry and weary time of drought, like Joel's community. Perhaps you feel like the exiles, like you just want to go back to the way it was Perhaps you're just excited. Like, this is like the day of Pentecost. This change is good, and you're happy and excited. And maybe some of you need just to go have babies before Jesus comes back. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Today, I want to focus on Peter's advice in 1 Peter 4 when things are difficult. We're going to dig into that advice and that story, that, that scripture for a bit. And then I'm going to finish with a story about Julian of Norwich. First Peter is a letter written by the apostle Peter to Jews and Gentiles. Um, remember though, let's go back in Peter's history. He was a fisherman and he was one of the first disciples that Jesus called along with his brother, Andrew. He's known or imagined in the Bible stories as being a bit of a hot-tempered, more brazen disciple who often put his foot in his mouth. He didn't always say the right things at the right time. And yet, God used him to become one of the leaders of the early church, one of the principal leaders of the early church. Years after Jesus went to heaven, Peter wrote this letter to some believers and he writes it to bring them hope because they're enduring some trials. Commentaries, commentators mention that the tone that Peter uses is patient and very refined. A lot of commentators say he couldn't have written it. It's way too polished. But he says in there that Silas helped him. So maybe he had the help of Silas. But other commentators say it illustrates just how much Peter had changed. Years of being with Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit had transformed him from being an impetuous, rough fisherman to a sound and strong leader who valued the gifts of others, such as Silas. Peter is writing this letter to encourage them that they can live in difficult times And they can care for one another. How do you care for one another in difficult times? And how, in your care for one another, do you bring praise to God because of your witness to him in dark times? Isn't it so beautiful? I find that encouraging, how much God transformed Peter. He became a shepherd of the flock, and he could feed them through the valley of the shadow of death. So the letter in this, avi- in this, the advice in this letter is good for us today, and I would like to ask you all if you read it out loud with me. So verses 7 through 11, would you, are you guys willing to read out loud with me? Okay, it's right there. The end of all things is near, therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray above all love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins offer hospitality to one another without grumbling each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of god's grace in its various forms if anyone speaks they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. Amen. There are six actions, and I'm going to cover the first two a little bit more, and I'm going to just touch on the others. It's be alert and sober so you can pray, love deeply, offer hospitality, give, speak, and serve. Holy Spirit, would you highlight to us today which one of those areas you'd like us to grow in? Highlight it for us, each as individuals and even collectively. So the first one is be of alert and of sober mind so you can pray. To pray is simply to talk to God to relate to God, and to expect God to respond. It's to give thanks, to praise, to present your requests and needs, and to communicate to your provider, your wisdom, your helper, and healer. And then it's to listen. Listening to what God might say in reply. To pray is to find a place of abiding, When there's a sense of urgency because the end is near and things are difficult, there's a sense of urgency to do, do, do. And there are things we absolutely need to do. But in this place, we're supposed to start by abiding in Christ and watchful, alert, listening prayer. The English word that we use for prayer comes from the Latin word precaria or precarious? We pray because we recognize we are living precariously. And if we're humble and honest, we know that our communities, our families, and our lives are vulnerable. But Jesus is with us, right? The disciples talked to Jesus about so many things. They asked tons of questions. But the one thing they asked him to teach them was to pray. Remember the Lord's prayer. Teach us to pray. They learn from Jesus' example that they could not preach the kingdom of, he- of heaven without the presence of God empowering them. I like what Pete Gregg says about this passage. The apostle Peter knows that it's entirely possible to do all the right things in the wrong way. I can love, but fail to love deeply with real grace. I can offer hospitality, but with a resentful, grumbling attitude. I can use the gifts of God, but to serve myself instead of others. I can speak for God, but without his authority. I can serve, but burn out doing so because I'm serving in my own strength instead of the strength God provides. I love that this list of things that Peter asks the disciples to do and the believers there to do begins with prayer, Because none of it works without starting in Christ, without being anchored first in Jesus. By abiding in Christ and with the Holy Spirit's power flowing through us, we can navigate difficult times. Prayer opens the door to God's presence and power and strength. And I don't want to do anything without those things. Next, he says, above all, love each other deeply. Why? Because love covers over a multitude of sins. We know that it's God's love and the blood of Jesus that washes our sin away, right? And it cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But Peter here is talking about our love for one another. Peter's asking us to love one another deeply. Other translations say strenuously, fervently. And when we do that, we can cover for one another. How does that work? How does love cover a multitude of sins? Sin is the things we do wrong and the way we harm each other and harm our relationship with God and others. The sin of others affects me, and my sin affects others. Sin is never a solitary endeavor. We might think we can do it in hiding, but it never works that way. It always affects others. We've all experienced this, right? When someone sins and harms us, or we've even experienced the sin of our whole community. And we both, you and I, can also recognize when we've done something, when I've done something harmful that has hurt someone else, I feel like I have to repent every single day. (laughs) Wednesday was especially a day when I was like, oh, Jesus, I did so much wrong today. When does the list end? Sin damages relationships. But deep, fervent, hardworking love can fill the void. It can cover sin and bring reconciliation. And when I talk about covering, I'm not talking about being in denial or avoiding things that need to be addressed. It's definitely not what I'm talking about. Think about Proverbs 28, 13. You can't whitewash your sins and get by with it. You find mercy by admitting it and leaving them. Amen. We have to deal with harmful behavior and sin and protect one another. But we also have to remember Jesus' words that were like the words such as love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you. Or when your enemy releases hatred or curses, we can respond with kindness and blessing. Or when a brutal temper flares out of control, we might bring peace and safety to the situation. One commentator said, all sin comes with a price. Some choice. We can rush to expose the sinfulness we see, spreading guilt and condemnation, or we can come to the aid of those who are the victims of sin. We are called to cover the losses left behind by sin. I've shared this quote before by Andy Stanley, but I want to say it again. Kindness is loaning someone else your strength instead of reminding them of their weakness. I wonder sometimes in these stressful, urgent, difficult times, how good are we at helping each other cover our losses? How good are we at that? One way we can do this is by hospitality. Peter reminds his listeners to love one another, offering hospitality to one another without grumbling. In in Peter's time, in the time of the New Testament church, people were being moved around all the time. There was a lot of persecution and movement. It was hard. It was hard to find a safe place to land. And the people of the church, they opened their doors to people who had been displaced or were having a hard time, people who needed a home. Hospitality is the kind and generous reception of strangers and guests. It's receiving someone in need and even acknowledging them. For example, Mark 9.37, Jesus says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. When we welcome someone... That's an act of hospitality. Maria Goff says, hospitality is always a matter of the heart. It's not a condition of our homes. You can practice hospitality anywhere. It can be in your workplace when you offer someone a seat at your table. It can be in a conversation when someone has not had a chance to speak, and you say, hey, Lon, what do you think? It's an act of hospitality. When we see someone, welcome them, name them, we help them recover the losses of sin and life, and we bring them home. And there's always space at God's table for his kids. So once we've received people and welcomed them to our table, then we use our gifts, right? Right? to serve one another and speak to one another and speak life to one another, Peter said each of you should use whatever gift you have to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Each one of us has something to give. When Peter wrote those letters, he was writing to free people, he was writing to slaves, to Jews, to Gentiles. But he cuts through all of that and addresses each one of them as stewards of God's grace. It didn't matter your background. He was saying, You can be a steward. A steward is another word for a manager of a household, an overseer of an estate, a treasurer of resources. When it comes to the kingdom, Each one of us has authority as a steward. You have authority to use your gifts. You can love deeply by using your gifts to serve others. And then he says, then Peter says, speak. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. We know when we're hearing the words of God because our words are marked by love and they bring life. We get these words again back in prayer by abiding in Christ. Proverbs 15.4 says, a wholesome tongue is a tree of life. Proverbs 16.24 says, gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. How many of us need healing in our bones? Amen? That serving and giving go hand in hand. He finishes with, if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides. And then it's, I feel like that passage is almost circular, right? It starts with prayer and welcoming and love and hospitality, and then we serve And we speak, but we do every bit of it with the strength that God provides. I pray that we will be a people who love, welcome, serve, and speak with the strength God provides. So I heard this story a month ago about Julian of Norwich. I'd heard about her in history books, in school. But I never really knew what she did or who she was. And so I've been learning more about her. And I want to tell you a little bit about her. And I got most the bulk of of this story that I'm sharing from a variety of sources, but from Lectio 365, which is a daily devotional I listen to. But Julian lived from 1342 to 1416 in England. That's 600 years ago. That's a long time ago. And we don't know much about her except what we read about her in her book. But in the 1370s, she got gravely ill, probably because of the bubonic plague or Black Death, which carried off half of the population of her area between the 1340s to into the end of the century. For them, it looked like the end of things was near, right? It was a terrible time in history. But she's just 30 years old when she's sick, and they totally expect her to die. But she has a series of 16 visions of Christ on the cross. And she was completely and miraculously healed. For the next 20 years of her life, she meditated in prayer about the things she had seen. And she starts recording what she saw in a book called The Revelations of Divine Love. I love that, that's the revelation she had in that time, was a revelation of divine love. When she published this book, she became the first woman anywhere in the world to publish a book in the English language. Pretty cool that that's the first book that a woman wrote, Revelations of God's Love. Her experience drew her deeply into a life of prayer And she chose to live almost in complete solitude, but not quite. They built a small cell on the side of the church, if you can see it in the picture there, of St. Julian's Church. And that's where she gets the name Julian. And it was in this bustling town of Norwich in a run-down and poor part of town. But here's what's interesting. This little apartment she had... On one side, it had windows into the church so that she could always participate in public worship and receive communion. She knew she needed to be part of church life. But on the other side, there were these big windows that looked out onto the street so that people could come to her to receive prayer and counsel. And so that's people would come and bring her food, and she would pray for them and speak to them and share and speak the words of God that he had given her. One gentleman said that the most striking thing about the revelations, the book of Revelations, is quite simply that at a time when there was an obsession with death, doom and gloom would have been entirely reasonable. But the revelations that she records are optimistic and uplifting, and affirmations of our relationship with God. They suggest that our ultimate destiny with God is intended to be beautiful and glorious. It's not a life, and life is not a test which sends its failures to hell. Her revelations stress the reality that Jesus shared in the mess and confusion of human existence. And that grace is very earthy and real for all of us. In her most famous passage, she says, she's pouring out her heart to God. She has all these questions and doubts. And this is how God replies to her I will make all things well. I shall make all things well. I may make all things well, and I can make all things well, and you will see yourself that all things will be well. You can just hear God trying to reassure her. It's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Things are going to be okay. In another one of her revelations, she says, my mind was lifted up to heaven, and I saw the Lord as Lord in his own house where he had called his friends and servants to a banquet. I saw that the Lord did not sit in one place, but ranged throughout the house, filling it with joy and gladness. He himself sat courteously and companionably, very hospitable. He greeted and delighted his friends with love, shining from his face like a marvelous melody that has no end. It is this look of love shining from God's face that fills the heavens with joy and gladness. Julian lived in a dark and gloomy time when plague decimated the land. And in the art of the time, Jesus is always depicted as earnest, um, bored, or mildly angry. (laughs) But here... In this early book, we have a completely different depiction of Jesus, and it's really wonderful. Here, he's hosting a party, moving from person to person with love shining from his face like a melody and filling the house with joy. Remember that image of Julian with the two windows in her cell. It's a powerful picture of life lived between church and the city, heaven and earth, God and humanity. From a place of abiding in prayer, she was able to receive and give love deeply, receive and welcome the people of Norwich with her own gifts and her own way. She was able to share her revelation and speak the very words of God to those who listened. In these challenging times, let's do the same. Amen? So, often we finish with a prayer, but instead of finishing with a prayer today, I thought we'd finish by reading 1 Peter 4 through 7 through 11 one more time. Do you guys want to stand with me? Would you all stand with me? let's read the end of all things is near therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray above all love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins offer hospitality to one another without grumbling Amen.